The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. I hope you've had a great morning, church. I really do. And um, if you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and grab them. Open with me uh, to 1 Timothy 3. And um, so last week, we took kind of a necessary detour, if you remember last week. And uh, we made a short pit stop in Acts. And the reason we did this, because um, we're preaching through 1 Timothy, so why do we... It, the reason we did that um, is because before we talked about the qualifications for deacons, it is essential that we first talk about what deacons are. And we talked about the fact that depending on your background, depending on where you come from, you might have a totally different understanding of what a deacon is in the church, what, what, they, what they do. And, and so um, with this confusion, I decided, hey, man, before we dig into these qualifications that we would first... Look at what a deacon is, what they do, and why God gave his church this group of people called deacons. And so that's what we did last week. And we looked at um, several places, but mainly Acts 6, where we saw the very first, the original deacons uh, given to the church. And we learned about what they did in the church and how they functioned and we, we took a, a quick look at this, but just in, in, in general, God's word has given the church two different roles and responsibilities, two. One being the office of elder and two being the office or position of deacon. What we saw or what we have been looking at here, um, I'm going to give up on the whole idea of having a clicker. I give up. Elders, protect the flock. They, they feed the flock, and they lead the flock. So it's over here. Position number one that Scripture gives us, elders, that is what they do. Along with that, we have our deacons. Deacons, on the other hand, what we see in Scripture and what we see demonstrated for us is that deacons care for the flock, deacons watch the flock, watch out for the flock, and Ultimately, deacons serve the flock. And so with that, what we've done is we've kind of looked at two statements here, that elders are our servant leaders, while deacons are our lead servants. That makes sense? That's what we've seen. So as we look at Acts and as we look at the early church, um, this is what we see both of the elders and the deacons, what their responsibilities are. And uh, what we saw last week is just as the church's needs and uh, challenges are going to be different and diverse, um, their, their job descriptions are often going to be different and diverse, depending on the church and depending on the community and depending on the needs. Um, but at the, the heart of it, their core function the caring for, watching out for, and serving, that remains the same. That has been given to 
the deacon. And so now with that, with that necessary detour behind us, we are going to continue in 1 Timothy, um, and we're going to look at chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 8. And so what I'd love to do is I'd love to just read it for us, then we'll pray, and we'll get to work. All right? So, so here we go. Uh, 1 Timothy 3, let's go to verse 8. It says, Deacons likewise must be dignified. Not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as, a, as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one Wife managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons uh, gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray together. God, we, uh, we come to your word and we come to this moment. And we pause and we just... Um, we ask that you would work in this time. We know and we stand on the fact that, that this is your word. We know and we stand on the fact that through, especially First Timothy, we've seen your heart, not only for your children, but for the church um, directly and specifically. And so, Lord, as we come to your word in First Timothy 3, let us just see your great heart for your church, how much you care for your church, how much you care for those who lead in your church. God, would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear as we look at this text together this morning in Jesus' name, amen. All right, deacons, you ready? Let's do it. No one said okay, but we do only have a small group of deacons, so maybe they're ready. All right, here we go. Here's the, the question of the day that we're going to see in our text is, is what kind of man must a deacon be? Um, for, for four weeks, we looked at what kind of man must an elder be. We did a lot of groundwork for that, and now here we're going to turn and ask the question, what kind of man must a deacon be? Um, I want to say up front just to set some expectations right away. Um, as we have been walking through the qualifications for elders over the last several weeks, um, in verses one through seven, if you look at chapter three, you're gonna notice something really uh, obvious right away. And that is, as you look at verses eight through 13, or 15, um, sorry, 13, then, and you look at one through seven, you're going to notice these qualifications look really similar. They look really similar. And I think Paul wants you to see that. If you notice in our text right away, it says deacons likewise. Likewise is a word that should be a big old arrow pointing backwards. Likewise. The word likewise points us back to the elder qualifications and saying in the same way, in a very similar way, not totally different, in the same way, likewise, deacons. So deacons like elders, right? Paul's connecting them. And I want to say this again up front. Um, I've said this multiple times, but um, 
this points back to something that, that is so important, and that is that these qualifications that we see here in both elders and in deacons, they're not some high-level, graduate-level Christianity stuff. Um, this isn't like the elite version. Like, you can have normal Christians and then the elite Christians who do these things. That's not what we see. That is not at all what we see. What we see here is just a list of godly characteristics for a follower of Jesus. Um, and what we saw uh, when we, you remember, when we looked at elder de- uh, qualifications, I put them all on the screen, and there was, and we walked through all of them, and, and we looked at them, and I remember there felt, it almost felt like there was this temptation to go, whew, glad I'm not one of those. Like, wow, it's a lot there, right? But as we looked closer, we were able to see how in multiple places all throughout Scripture that God's Word actually calls you and, and all of us to the very same things. Like, this isn't graduate-level stuff here. This is just walking with Jesus. And, it, and Paul is saying, look, elders must be an example of what that looks like. Be an example of what um, following Jesus looks like, must model godly character. And so with that, it's no surprise at all that when he deals with deacons, he says, deacons, likewise, your qualifications look very similar because, again, we're not talking about a graduate-level thing here. Elders must be an example of a godly life, so too must deacons. Elders must exemplify godly character, so too, likewise, must deacons. Um, these, these qualifications are really a call for all of us. And so here in 1 first, in first Timothy, Paul is being clear here that elders and deacons, church leaders, must exemplify godly character. So when the church looks, they can see that in their leaders and servants. That's what Paul's getting at here. So deacons likewise. And now with that, um, we're going to look at some of these, we're going to look at these qualifications. We're going to look at all of them. Um, and I'm going to be moving through them fast. Uh, there's a couple reasons for this. Um, number one, and the main reason, is that the vast majority of these we have spent a great deal of time with in the last couple weeks. Um, and so, not going to, you know, rehash a lot of these, but um, we are going to move quickly through them. We're going to see some important things, especially as they uniquely relate to deacons, and we're going to work through these. There are eight qualifications in our text, and then a wonderful summary statement at the end. So we're going to look at the eight, and we're going to look at the summary statement at the end. All right? You ready to go? All right, here we go. Let's look at our first qualification of the eight, and that is that deacons must be dignified. This is a weird word. Um, I think of like Pride and Prejudice or some like hoity old British show or something, I don't know, with this word dignified. Um, But the word here is actually synonymous with, um, or very similar synonymous to the word that we see in the elder qualifications of above reproach. Very similar idea here is being communicated. It's the call for the elder to be well thought of, worthy of respect from others. And just like the elders, um, Paul here points to Deacons, and, and this qualification points to a, a really important truth, and that is that we are Christ's ambassadors. We shine Christ to a, a, a world that looks in on us, and not that we're perfect because there is none that is perfect. Scripture says, no, not one outside of Christ 
but we represent Christ to a watching world. So, so one way to think about this here is, you know what the opposite of above reproach is? It's to bring reproach, okay? And so one way to think about this, that's the very last thing that I want that any church leader, any of us as a follower of Jesus should want to bring reproach on, to bring reproach to. It's true for all of us who want to serve him well, represent him well, and church, that is especially true for those who lead in the church, that we would not bring reproach to or on elders and deacons alike. Um, We don't want to bring reproach on Christ or his church, and so the men who step in this role, they must be above reproach and dignified. Not in a pride and prejudice way, but in an above reproach kind of way, okay? Dignified. Um, In a way that would not bring that reproach. So that's number one. Number two, qualification number two. Deacons must not be double-tongued. That deals with lying, devious speech, right? And uh, this is one of those qualifications that is unique to deacons in that we don't see it in verses one through seven. But oh my goodness, this is not unique to deacons. Like, um, I know you already know this, but thou shalt not bear false witness, right? Thou shalt not lie. Like, that's, that's, that's pre-deacon qualifications, right? We see in Proverbs, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. We see Colossians 3, 9, don't lie to one another. This isn't a deacon conference. This is all of us. Don't lie to one another seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. I could list so many more. We get the point, though. This is not a special deacon qualification. This is honestly just the heart of God for his people, that we would not be liars. It's his heart that we would be honest. Honesty is the way of God for his children. This is more than lying, though. It is lying, but it's more than lying. It it also includes all double-tongued things, like uh, slander, maybe a little gossip. Um, spreading rumors, right? So for a deacon, Paul chooses to highlight this qualification, focusing on the tongue and controlling the tongue. And as I thought about this, it really makes a lot of sense why. I mean, I don't know Paul on a personal level. I can't ask him why did you put it in. But as I think about deacons, it makes a lot of sense to me. Because if you think about it, deacons are called to care for and watch out for the flock and to step into some often messy situations. That's what a deacon does. To step in and to care for the people of the church. They see all the needs, right? You get what I'm going with this. Can you imagine if it's the deacon of the church the ones charged to care for the church, watch out for the church, if they're the ones spreading gossip in the church, they're the ones slandering, they're the ones not being able to control their tongues. I mean, can you imagine the damage that that would bring in the church? Deacons as caretakers are often front row to very sensitive things. Sensitive information. So a loose-tongued deacon, who it could be, it would be, absolutely detrimental to the church. And so Paul says, watch out, guard the gate. If you see someone double-tongued, don't you dare put them in here. That right there will destroy the church. Which leads to the third. Third qualification, 
Uh, we talked about this with elders as well, but deacons must not be addicted to much wine. You see that there in your text. Um, we did do, again, a deeper dive in this when we saw the same qualification with our elders. But to be clear here, this is not an outright prohibition to all kinds of drinking of alcohol. This is a prohibition to exactly what it says, too much wine, to addiction, to abuse. The addiction of an abuse of alcohol clouds our judgment, takes away our ability to fulfill our role faithfully, to serve... It takes away our ability to serve the church when many in the church are struggling with the abuse of alcohol. This is a big deal. This is so important. Oftentimes, it also destroys credible witness in our communities. So Paul says, let that not be. And this qualification is more than just, you know, our particular drink preference. It touches on self-control over self-indulgence guards against the leadership of the church being controlled by a substance. Or better stated, losing control to a substance. So again, this is about guarding the gate so that leaders and servants of the church can lead and serve faithfully with a clear mind and, and a gospel focus. That's number three. Number four, I told you I'm moving fast. Number four, deacons must not be greedy for dishonest gain. Um, as you look at Paul's writings, not just in 1 Timothy, but in, in all of his, his letters, this is one of the most common themes you're going to see in Paul's letters. He really has a beef with those who preach and teach and minister for selfish gain and money. He is just, he talks about it. It must have been a huge pet peeve for him. It really must have been. You see it in so many letters. It must have been. Like uh, Paul in 1 Thessalonians, for example. He says, we never came to you with words of flattery, as you know, nor the pretext for greed. God is our witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we didn't do that, he says. We weren't like those people who do that. Then he says in Another text in 2 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 8.20. We take this course so that no one should blame us about the generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable, not only in the, in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. This is a central theme for Paul and ministers of the gospel and leaders in the church. That we would not be tied up in greed and financial gain. We saw this very similar command in elders when we saw the uh, love of money, not be a lover of money in the elder qualifications. And I, I brought this, this out as we walked through those, but um, just to highlight this again, if, if uh, you remember when I, when I spoke about this, back in the day when we were about to start Stone Oak Bible Church, we did a massive demographic study research and there was a report given to us, and uh, there were surveys done of asking so many questions. Like it was a, it was a beefy, well, I say it was this, it was digital, but you know what I mean. Um, but it was, it was asking questions, lots of questions. And one of the questions it asked for people who are in, in Stone Oak, North Central San Antonio, who do not go to church, they were asked, why? Right? 
And uh, when we did this demographic research and they were asked that, uh, among the top responses, and this was multiple ways of saying the same thing, was a lack of trust in the way church leadership handles money. That, I say it again, that is absolutely heartbreaking because that is not the heart of God for his church or for his church leaders. It's not the heart of God. It goes against the heart of God for his church. Deacons are to serve the church, not to use the church to serve themselves, right? Leaders, we are to serve the church, not to use the church to serve ourselves. I mean, think about this. Think about why this matters so much. Deacons are often responsible for distributing funds, right? And, and to help and to serve the community. And Paul's saying here, if you see a man who's greedy, you're in it for the money. That's going to be a man who's going to potentially use that power, use that position to serve himself, and he cannot serve in this role. So it's no surprise to me that Paul, again, because it is his pet peeve and because of the role of deacon, that he brings it out here. Let's look at our next qualification, verse 9. They must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. So a deacon must hold the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. Um, I don't know if you're allowed to have a favorite qualification, but this is my favorite, hands down. This is awesome. Paul says hold. That means, I mean, get the visual of that clinging to, holding on to, right? Grip, gripping onto. Hold what? Hold the mystery. What's a mystery? A mystery is something that's beyond your comprehension. It's something that's beyond you. It's a mystery. That's tough for me because I don't really like mysteries. I like having answers and tidy. So all my questions, here's an answer. I, I like that, but that's not a mystery, Mystery is something that's beyond me when I can't fully answer the question. Um, here's the thing. When you study theology for any amount of time, if you are honest, it's all about the mystery. God is one eternally existing in three. Mystery. God is sovereign, all-knowing, and yet invites us to pray to him. Mystery. God is eternal. Mystery. Jesus is fully God, fully man? What? Mystery. Church, through this, as we hold to this, we simultaneously hold to, cling to a mystery. Praise God that our God is beyond us. Um, don't trust any teacher who takes all the mystery out, like ever. Don't do it. In math, don't trust that teacher. But in, in the gospel, don't, don't trust that teacher. God has invited us to know him. That is absolutely true. He's given us this to know him. That is absolutely true. But at the same time, he is beyond us and our comprehension. And therefore, we hold, we cling, we grasp the mystery. And this is why it's faith, Hebrews 11, that, that text is now faith. It's the assurance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not yet seen, right? So if we had all the answers, if we saw everything, it would not be faith, that would be sight. 
But as it is, we are saved by grace through faith. And so we hold to the mystery of the faith. And then you have that last phrase that is, is, is uh, incredible, with a clear conscience. Um, there's a commentator, if you'd put that up, this is, I don't know, Newt, but I love this statement. It says, in the first century, the conscience was seen as the seat of the will. To hold truth with a clear conscience was not only to agree intellectually, but volitionally as well. Intellect and mind must agree with life and purpose. Doctrine must penetrate to the person's will so that his conscience before God and others is blameless as he lives biblical truth in his daily life. So powerful as we think about that. It's not just, in other words, it's not just about the intellectual assent to truth, but it's about believing it's about believing. It's about faith in it. It's truth that flows from the head, that long distance down to the heart, and flows to the hands. It's holding to the faith with a clear conscience. What an incredible qualification that is. Um, and honestly, that's not a bad life motto to have. I, uh, I know it's not probably... Anyway, I think of my tombstone. Um, I shouldn't do that right now. I wouldn't mind if that one's on there, though. Like Justin, a man who held to the mystery of faith with a good conscience. That's not bad. You could do worse than that. So deacons must be men who hold to, grab to, cling to the mystery of the faith with a good conscience. Qualification number six. Here we go. Verse 10. Let them also be tested. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. So our next qualification that we see is this. Deacons must be tested first. Um, I don't want you to think about this like a written test in school, by the way. Uh, scripture doesn't give us like a multiple choice questionnaire that deacons have to complete in order for them to be qualified for candidacy. We don't see that in Scripture. But this t idea of testing does raise some questions, right? I mean, what kind of test is this? Is this a prohibition, or prohibition, probation, not prohibition, probation period? And also, who gives this test, right? There's a lot of questions that can come here. But let's think about this, because I think the best way to understand this test in this context is to look back at how Paul dealt with the elders in verse 6. We look, and it says in verse 6, he must not be, what, a recent convert. Or he's going to get pumped up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. There's a testing that we face, church, as we just walk out this life in Christ. Um, life goes up and at times life goes down. And, and it, it, we face joy and we face hardship. We face exhaustion and we face excitement. Right? We face it all. Testing, the testing that we face is how we walk through this life, facing all of that, all the ups, all the downs, how we face that. That's the test. So for an elder, Paul says, someone new to the faith shouldn't step into this role for many reasons, but one thing, because that person has yet to be tested. The best way to understand this qualification here for a deacon 
is similar to that because there's no, there's no formal test that churches give to their deacon candidates. Life is a test. Life is a test. Life is the test. And so a life that withstands observation. That's what this is saying. And we're able to see that in the life of a deacon through the way they live their life in Christ. That's the test. That's how they're tested. But there's that last line on this one that says, let them serve if they prove themselves what? Blameless. Like that's an insane word. If blameless is the qualification, then there is only one who would qualify, and that is the blameless son of God. So why do we have deacons, right? If blamelessness is like the qualification here. But here, blamelessness is not and cannot be a statement of their moral perfection before God and man. Cannot be. It cannot be. The best way to understand this and interpret this phrase is is basically the understanding of holding nothing being held against them. Does that make sense? Blameless means um, in, in, in the sight of the accuser. And we all know the work of Jesus. You're blameless. So we know that. And then on a very practical side of this, what, is, what Paul is saying here is let the man be tested by life and found faithful to Christ and above reproach. That's what Paul's getting at here. Let the man be tested in his life and if found faithful, if found to be dignified, above reproach, let him serve in this role. So this is the heart of the qualification. I got to say, can you imagine if every church were led by men like that? Can you imagine if every church was served by men like that? Church, that is exactly what Jesus imagines for his church. It's just like imagine. All right. You ready for a tough one? Some of you, when I read it, I think we're ready for me to get to this verse right here. Toughest qualification in the whole chapter. Let's do it. Let's knock it out. Um, verse 11. I'm reading in the ESV here. And I'll explain why that matters here in a second. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. If you use, don't go to the next one yet, go back. I don't want to give it away. (laughs) If you use ESV, that's what it reads. And you're thinking, what's the conflict? Let's just rock on, let's keep going. What if you're here and you're rocking an NIV this morning? Go ahead and put it up here. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. Okay, what about the New American Standard people? Women. What? Not their wives, but women in general must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Okay, what about the King James people? Even so must their wives. Here we go back again. New living. In the same way, their wives. New King James. Likewise, their wives. But then we have Holman Christian, who just blows it all up and gives us another lane. Wives in general. Wives too must be worthy 
of respect. So wives, not, not their wives, but wives in general. Okay, so this is insane. Who is this talking to? Um, is it women in general? Is it deaconesses? Is that even a thing? Wives of deacons? All wives in general. What in the world is going on here? Uh, this is a tough one, and it's not because your translator of your Bible wants to mess with you, okay? They're not trying to pick on you. They're not trying to make it difficult for you. This is tricky because the original language is really tricky here. There's no getting around it. The, the original language here is one word, gune, and it's in the Greek, can mean both woman and wife. And so all of the interpretations of this text, all commentators and all of their interpretations will be contingent on context. And that's why out of the nine or so translations I gave you, there are three options. Some of these are really faithful translations of the Bible, and yet they're whoop, over here, right? So the saying is trustworthy here that um, let Scripture interpret Scripture, I bring this up because when you face a difficult text, you want to look for other places in Scripture that can help shine light and understand. Because here's the thing, the Bible doesn't contradict the Bible because God doesn't contradict God, and God's Word doesn't contradict what God's Word has already said. So you look at other places, and so translations are going to vary because translations are dependent and contingent on context. I think there are three possible ways to interpret this. Number one, this could be a reference to uh, some kind of female deacon or deaconesses. Number two, this could be a reference to just women in general, or maybe ladies in the church who are helping in this role. Or number three, this could be a specific reference to deacons' spouses, their wives. I think those are our three options. You may have another one, but you're wrong. No, I'm joking. Um, there's, there's, those are the three that I see, okay? And um, I believe that the most likely interpretation of this is the third. Um, the third being that this is looking at the deacon's wife, and then in the very next verse, the deacon's family. Three reasons for this. Could give a lot more, but again, I'm, I'm moving through this here. Um, the way that this is just right plop in the middle of a deacon qualification, it would seem odd to switch back and forth to women in general. It just is very like, woo, like uh, is squirrel. And, and Paul does do the whole squirrel thing occasionally, but this one would be really jarring um, because right after this, right after mid-thought, he goes right back to deacons. Um, and number two, I do think that this flows really well. If it is referring to deacons' wives, it flows really well with verse 12 where it keeps going and talks about the deacons' home. Um, and so it would make sense here, I believe, that Paul would be talking about the deacon's wife. But can I give you a, another practical reason? I said that it's context, right? Uh, really practically, what does a deacon do in a church? Care and service. And that ministry will so often involve the deacon's spouse. It will. I'm going to give you an example, a really practical one. Let's pretend we have a widow in our church who is hurting and in need of someone to sit with her. This is a huge opportunity for the church to care and to step in. And so I'll pick on one of our deacons. I'll pick on Rick. Rick Elizondo, love Rick. He's so kind and engaging. But here's the thing. I have a feeling it wouldn't be Rick who's sitting in that room. 
maybe he would. But I would guess that it would be much more likely that his wife Blanca would be in the room with this widow, or Judy, the wife of our other deacon who would be in this room with this widow who is administering care. This is on a really practical level, but here's the thing. Because of the nature of the biblical responsibility of what a deacon does in the church, it would make sense to me that Paul would want to speak to the wife and the family as well. In a unique way, even, even more than what we see with the elders, in a very unique way. And so here with this qualification here, deacons must have wives who are dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded and faithful in all things. If you notice with this, um, the qualifications that are given for the deacon's wife are the same as we've seen before. There's nothing new here. We have dignified. There's, you know, above reproach again. Not slanders. There's that tongue thing again. Not being out of control with your tongue. Sober-minded. That's clear in thought. And then faithful in all things. Um, this, by the way, is not perfection here. I'll say this again and again. Uh, but what this is is a reference to faithful in all manner of things, whether they be big, whether they be small. Um, seen or unseen, it focuses on faithfulness, trustworthiness. So deacons must have wives who are dignified, not slanderers, sober-minded, faithful in all things. And this is really Paul taking a turn into the home. Because as we, as we look, he starts with the deacon's wife, verse 11, then he moves quickly to the deacon's role in the home in verse 12 as we get to our last qualification. Let each deacon be the husband of one wife, managing their children, their own households well. So this is an exact parallel to verses 4 and 5. Exact parallel. Um, and here's the thing. I don't mean to punt on this one, but we took an entire week just sitting with one verse, this verse, a couple weeks ago on what it means to manage the home, and, and we walked through this in great depth. So as much as I would like to preach that one again, um, what I do want to do is, is put this up here. Um, you can scan this and watch it later if you haven't, but it's Elders Must Be Part 2. We looked at this in depth. And if you missed it and want to dig in deeper, let me know or scan this, and, and, and we'll, we'll move um, and, and I'd help you in any way. Love to talk over coffee as well, because I love coffee, all right? Um, but this weekend, we've dedicated to unpacking this, this important qualification. And, and here's the thing. As a whole, what this means is that the home is a necessary proving ground for leadership in the church. Okay? It's a necessary proving ground. If you want to see how a man will lead in the church, how does he lead in the home? If you want to see how a man is going to serve in the church, how does he serve in his home? Faithfulness in the small is essential to faithfulness in the big. That's what he's pointing to here. It's what we pointed out with Jesus in the parable that says, uh, the parable of the, of the servants who says, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a little. Now I will set you over much. It's that same concept of, of look for those who have been faithful in a, little, in a little and then set them over much. 
Same goes for deacons. And so what, what um, Paul is saying here is simple. If they have not been faithful over the little in their homes, don't set them over much in the church. Deacons must be faithful to their wife and must lead their family well. So all those qualifications, we'll put them back up here. This is, this is it. Deacons must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. My favorite, they must hold to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. They need to be tested first. They must have wives that are dignified, not slanderers, sober-minded, faithful in all things. And lastly, they must be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. That's a big calling. And for a moment, I want you to feel the weight of that. I know our deacons here do. That's a big calling. And I think it is really good for us to feel that weight. Because that's how seriously our God takes his church. That's how much it matters. And again, this isn't a new or novel calling. This is something we're all called to. So I want to ask, same thing I ask as we walk through elders um, in that section. I want to ask you the very same thing. Is God calling you to serve in that role? Is God putting it on your heart to serve in this biblical office within the church is God putting it on your heart to deacon here God may be calling you to this and you may think that was not on my radar um, and that's okay you're not at the first and you won't be the last that God does that to but I pray that if God is putting this on your heart that you would take that next step you will seek to step in because the church needs people who will care for it, watch out for it, and serve it. Is God calling you to do that? By the way, whether or not that is in the official deacon role, I'll ask you the same question. Is God calling you to care for, to look out for, and to serve his church. Because if the official deacons are the only ones who deacon, the only ones who serve, the only servants, the only ones who watch out for and care and serve, let's, listen, our church is in a lot of trouble. God cares for his church and loves his church and he loves, I want you to hear me, he loves the servants of his church. And I want to focus on something as we wrap up. And that is our last verse. Verse 13 says, For those who serve well as a deacon gain good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. I have a feeling we could rush past that without realizing how incredibly beautiful that is. Listen, out of all the study that I have been doing in this text all of it, um, all the time I spent, this is the thing that stopped me in my tracks and I could not get over it. 
I want you to take this in. God only gives us two positions, two offices, right? Only two. Elder, those who lead, and deacons, those who serve. And I want you to just think about what this reveals to us about the heart of our God. Does this not just show off God's strange, upside-down economy? Here's what I mean. Jesus says, it's the first who will be last and the last that will be first. Upside down. That's crazy. Love your enemy. Bless those who persecute you. Upside down. Give your life away if you want to gain it. You seek to gain it, you're going to lose it. Son of man, Messiah, king of the universe, God in the flesh, came in human form, stepped into humanity, into creation to give himself for those he created. Upside down. Just crazy. The Son of Man, as we looked at last week, came not to be served, but to serve. God's economy flips everything upside down. And wouldn't you know that that is exactly what we see in the Bible that God does in his church? He flips it. Because in verse 13, it's those who serve well, who deacon well, who gain a good standing for themselves. The servants, really? It's the servants who gain great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. The servants? Really? See, in in the world's economy, we love rock stars. We love those on the top. We love the powerful, the spotlight, the big dogs. We love that. But that's not the ones who God elevates in his church. God elevates the servants. Do you see what that says about the heart of our God? Jesus talking to the big dogs, the scribes and the Pharisees at one time in Matthew 23, looks them in the eye, boldly says, the greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever wants to exalt himself, guess what? You will be humbled. But whoever humbles himself will be exalted. There it is, upside down. In no other organization would you expect that. But God turns upside down things in his kingdom. Jesus comes to serve, and so it just makes all the sense in the world that he would call the church to do the same thing, doesn't it? Last week, I read Philippians 2 that says, have this mind among yourself, which is in Christ Jesus, who those in the form of God did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped, right? But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being found in the likeness of men, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We read that last week. But do you remember what comes next? Therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What does that say? It says whoever wants to exalt himself you will be humbled. Whoever humbles himself will be exalted. This is upside down. Jesus came to serve. Jesus came to humble himself. So it makes sense that he would call you to do the same thing. And God exalted him. 
He is the exalted servant, so doesn't it just make sense that he would do the same thing in the church and call the church to exalt his servants? It makes sense because it's upside down. So as we finish this, um, we're finishing 1 Timothy. By the way, for the summer, I'll talk about that in a bit. But as we finish this, we need to look to Jesus and just see his heart and, and the exalted servant. We need to look to Jesus and we need to thank God for giving his church deacons. The capital D deacons, the ones who fill the role in the office, and the lowercase d deacons, those who serve in his church. We stand on Christ's call and his example that the greatest among you are the servants. Don't miss that. The greatest among you are the servants. It's all upside down, and I love it because that's the way Jesus does it.